Well, this sermon series in the book of Acts has been a game changer. And if you're walking in here and visiting for the first time, we love that you are here. Uh, I get to watch people walking into our building for the first time, and it was hilarious to watch some of you take a picture at the front of the building like you were sightseeing. Um, yes, I, I, was, I was kind of spying on you. It was so funny, and you can just tell who's, who's from out of town. So excited that this is like a place that you feel like is worthy of taking a picture of. But if you're walking in and you haven't been a part of this series, it's so unfortunate because a lot of what we're doing builds on what has happened previously in the book of Acts. So I would highly encourage you to check those sermons out make sure you read the entire book of Acts leading up to this moment so that it makes perfect sense. But admittedly, not all sermons in this series are created equal. Uh, Every week I try to make sure I am studied up, prayed up, and prepared to deliver the word of God. But every once in a while, there's a sermon that has been so written in the culture and DNA of our church that our team collectively waits and prays and leans into more of God and says, God, when you release this, please say this the way your Holy Spirit wants it to be said. And that's true about this sermon today. Our team has known this sermon was coming since May when I told them, whoa, there's this like trajectory changing book that I'm reading that confirms a lot of what we've been doing as a church. And I I really want our church to feel and to understand these realities today. And I think the perfect timing to bring it up is when Paul preaches his first sermon and joins in with the sermons of Peter and Stephen that we've already heard. So I want to give you the title for this sermon, but I just want you to buckle up because today is so much more than a sermon. This is not only an explanation for why we do things the way we do them as a church, but I would say a conviction for us as a family to rethink what we think about when we hear and speak the word gospel. The title of this sermon is called King Jesus Gospel. King Jesus Gospel, and I have to admit it when I do it, I'm stealing this title from a book that I absolutely love. It's called The King Jesus Gospel, and it's by a guy named Scott McKnight, and I want to highly recommend it to you. I think we have a slide that just shows you kind of the picture of it, and we have it in the lobby as well. Let's go ahead and throw that. There we go, guys. Uh, The King Jesus Gospel by Scott McKnight. This book is a game changer. Uh, Not because it presents any sort of new information. It's just a reframing of making sure that we keep the King Jesus in the gospel. The word gospel in the New Testament simply means proclamation of good news. It means to speak out good news. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is a pronouncement of the good news that's brought in by the kingdom of God ushered in by the coming death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But the argument of this book and what I want to put forth to you today is that if you oversimplify your definition of the gospel you end up with a gospel that strips the King Jesus from the good news. You know, it's possible to hear the good news and not acknowledge Jesus as king, especially given that we're a part of a generation that was mostly presented a gospel that hinged on a few realities from John 3.16. What were they? God loves us. Jesus died on the cross for us. He rose from the dead on our behalf. His payment for sin was enough to atone for our sin. And his resurrection from the dead and sending out of the Holy Spirit is our invitation to be in the family of God forever and ever if by grace through faith we accept this gift. Y'all, everything I just said is 100% true and also 100% awesome. It's amazing to proclaim and hear those realities, but it's also 100% 
incomplete when stripped from the grand narrative that that story is woven into. See, if all you have is a gospel message where randomly the Son of God pops down onto earth just to die for you and pay for your sin, so that if you pray a prayer at one moment in the past, it can kind of serve as an eternal insurance policy for you, where when you get scared about death and what's going to happen after death, you just remember this moment when you were in elementary school or, or middle school or high school and go, well, I did pray the prayer, and that guy told me that if I repeated after him, I would be saved, and there was a lot of confirmation, and then I got baptized after that, so it was absolutely amazing. And we end up with this picture of eternal security that's entirely based on a gospel that has been oversimplified. See, that version of the gospel doesn't have anything about repentance and turning from your sin and being transformed by Jesus over time. It doesn't have anything about Jesus being the king of Israel, which is pretty important according to the scriptures. It doesn't have anything about Jesus being the king of your life and that you no longer have authority over the way you live and the choices that you make and the relationships that you're a part of, but you're submitted to his lordship. And it, it doesn't have anything about the glory of God, which is the ultimate purpose for which we were created. And so I don't bring this message today just to convict us and make us rethink everything from the past by no means. I bring this message today because we're seven sermons into the book of Acts and these guys are not preaching the quote-unquote gospel the way you and I grew up believing the gospel should be preached. Like This is going to be the seventh one. If you want to go back and read the previous ones, you're going to be shocked to read. It doesn't sound like Jesus came, died, rose again, now pray a prayer. It is a presentation of a king who has been sent down from heaven to extend the rule and the reign of God that you and I are invited into as sons and daughters. And when you see the full picture, Paul is going to preach today of the King Jesus gospel. I think it's an invitation for our church to be a part of a wave of a new culture in the church that says deep discipleship doesn't have to be limited to a chosen few, but is actually invited to the masses when you make Jesus king and ruler of your life. And if people are going to make Jesus king and ruler over their lives, it starts with a new way of presenting this message in the first place. Are y'all okay? I know I didn't come to church to have my whole thought process about the gospel rethought. Well, you shouldn't have brought your Bible. If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. This is, this is what we're learning from. This is not about me bringing something I have on my heart in life. This is about what we're reading today. I love a dad is like sharing a Bible with his daughter over there. That's awesome. Super cute. Hope you got a picture of that. Turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We're going to pick up right where Gage left off last week. Remember, Paul and Barnabas have become the first official global missionaries sent out by the church in Antioch. So they went to Cyprus last week and we heard that story. Now they're going to go to a city called Pisidian Antioch. This is different from the Antioch that they've been sent out from. And we're going to read a large section of scripture. I'm just going to read it and talk about it as we go. And as we're doing this, I want in the back of your mind, if this is the way Paul preaches the gospel to an audience that is brand new to this message, what does it mean for what I believe about the gospel in my day? Acts chapter 13, verse 13. If you're there, say I'm there. It says, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. 
So let's, let's make sure we're setting the scene for what's about to happen in this passage. Paul and Barnabas are traveling around. They're in a city called Pisidian Antioch that has a lot of Jews, but also some some God-fearing Gentiles. So it's a gathering of the Jewish people of God, but also with an extended invitation to the Gentiles who have come to worship God, just like it would happen in the Old Testament with the tabernacle. But this is in a synagogue that it was caused by the diaspora, the spreading out of Jews all over the Greco-Roman world. And when Paul and Barnabas arrive, I love their heart posture in it. They don't arrive going, hey, we got a brand new message for you guys. Somebody give us the microphone because your leaders have no idea what they're talking about. No, they have humility. They're sitting there just listening to the reading that's happening on the Sabbath. And then the leaders go, brothers, if you have a word, bring it on. Like they speak because they have an invitation, not infringing on everybody else's rights. I would argue this is absolutely essential for the way we understand gospel preaching in our day. This is why the vast majority of us are not on Tumor's Corner on game day with a megaphone. Uh, Because those people have not invited us to hear the message of Jesus that way. We want to be cognizant of the way we present this message and make sure we're spreading it relationally, the way the Holy Spirit reveals opportunities over time, not dominating people with a message about hell to make them scared. So this is, I didn't even plan to say that. See, that's when you know the Holy Spirit is just on something, guys. So what's going to happen? The mic is is metaphorically, no microphones back then, handed off to the Apostle Paul. This is a big moment, y'all. He's been preaching for a while. We're not going to act like this is his first sermon ever. But this is his first sermon in Acts. One of the greatest preachers of all time, certainly the greatest writer. Here we go. Acts chapter 13, verse 16. Paul, give us the gospel. Here we go. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand. I love that. Paul's not the only one who's like out of control with his hand gestures. And said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God. So he knows who he's talking to. Listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt with mighty power. He led them out of that country for about 40 years. He endured their conduct in the wilderness and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's summarizing the old Testament in a 30,000 foot view, but beginning with God choosing the people of Israel under father Abraham, all the way to the Exodus under Moses, all the way to Joshua's conquest. I mean, he's covering a lot of ground very quickly, but he's taking us back through the story. Keep going. After this, God gave them judges. Remember that book until the time of Samuel. Remember that book first and second Samuel, the prophet. Then the people asked for a King and he gave them Saul, son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one who you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. 
The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. What is happening? I know it was a large section. Stay with me. Paul is doing this 30,000-foot view of the Old Testament, but he's marrying it to the New Testament. Did you notice how in Paul's story, there is no stop and restart when John the Baptist shows up to start the New Testament? This is one story for him. Of the descendants of David, this is where Jesus came from, the promised Messiah. He is the one testified about by John. That's John the Baptist. You can read about him in all four gospels about how he prepared the way, the coming of Elijah, so that when the Savior comes, everybody would be ready for it and would be paying attention. And now this Jesus who was written about was put to death on a cross. Wait a second, how does that happen? That happens because everything about the details of his betrayal and his death and his burial and his resurrection were prepared for by God. This is one story that God has been writing from the beginning, prepared beforehand by John the Baptist, now seen in full fruition through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Watch how he summarizes it in verse 32. We tell you the good news. What's another word for good news? Gospel. What God has promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. What's a good summary of the Old Testament and New Testament? What God promises with words, he fulfills with action. We just sang, great is your faithfulness about the promises of God. We re-sang the story of the Old Testament, God of Abraham. You're the God of covenant, of faithful promises. God is a God who when he speaks a promise, it is as good as done the moment he speaks it. Because every intention of his mind is carried out in the works of his hand. And the coming of Jesus has been prepared for. His kingship as the son of David and his rule over all the earth is prepared for and solidified when he dies. Why does he have to die and rise again? Keep reading. As it is written in the second Psalm, so he's going to quote Psalm 2, You are my son. Today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessing promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. What's Paul doing there? He's gathering all these promises about David from the Old Testament and compiling them. He's like, you know how it says about David in Psalm 2? Today I've become your father. You are my son. And you know how it also says that when he dies, his body's not going to see decay? The thing about that is that promise wasn't about David himself. It was about his lineage because David did die. And guess what? His body did decay. 
But the son of David, Jesus, he died and his body did not decay because he was raised on the third. Paul's trying to let them see this whole story, all of this buildup God has given has been confirmed in full by the work of Jesus. And the light bulbs are going off. They're going off. People are coming to understand, whoa, this is the center of this story. This is what the whole meaning of the story was all along. Now watch what Paul does. If you, if you stop paying attention in all this information being passed on to you, please come back to me right now because you've got to hear verse 38. Watch what Paul does. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Do you see this? That conclusion that Paul makes at the very end of this long presentation of the story, that conclusion is the introduction most of us were given to meeting Jesus. At the very end, he's like, okay, in light of all of this weight, in light of all of this buildup, in light of all of this story, here's what God was doing. He was crucifying his son so that you could have a justification by grace before God something you could have never been given with all your best efforts under the covenant of the law of Moses. Do you understand that what Jesus has done for you is the free gift of salvation and the grace of God, which is so beautiful, it's so true, but do you understand and see in this context and in all the other gospel presentations we've had so far in the book of Acts, the power of these statements is found embedded in the story that they derive from. The story of Israel, the story of a God of covenant, the God who created everything, who's drawing humanity into loving relationship with him. And I, I wish we could hit every detail of this passage. I want you to read the rest of chapter 13 when you have time this week. Here, here's the brief summary. A lot of people are blown away and say yes to a relationship with Jesus for the first time. Uh, there's a lot of Jews who are there who are like deep studiers. And they're like, he's right. I see it. It's amazing. And they invite them back to speak again the next week on the Sabbath. And when they invite Paul and Barnabas back, the whole city comes out and the Jews are super jealous because they're like, there's so many people going to hear from these guys. We got to do something to get them out. And they stir up rumors and persecution against Paul and Barnabas so much so that Paul and Barnabas actually have to leave this area despite the fact that it seems like revival is breaking out and so many people are getting saved. That's the rundown of Acts chapter 13. And the one verse I can't hit on that I, I just must say something about from Acts 13 is it says everyone appointed for eternal life was saved. You need to know when the gospel is preached, the people who are drawn to a relationship with God are always appointed by God beforehand. And God is the one who makes the first move, not us. And everyone appointed for eternal life is saved. Now, everybody look up at me and don't miss this moment. I've been, I've been just waiting to open our eyes to this moment for months and months and months and praying in Jesus' name that the light bulb goes off and this makes sense. Do you see a difference in the gospel sermons in the book of Acts versus the gospel sermons that the vast majority of us grew up and were saved under. And I'm not up here to slam any of those sermons because I've been a part of preaching many of them. I'm just up here to ask the question, when you came to saving faith in Jesus, was it honestly and accurately articulated as part of the story that we are hearing from the Old Testament, or 
Was it presented to you in a way where Jesus died and rose again and hurry up and pray a prayer because we don't want you to go to hell? And I know it's uncomfortable to go there, but when the scripture confronts you this blatantly, I think we have to be willing to go there because a shallow understanding of the gospel always leads to a shallow lifestyle of discipleship. A shallow understanding of the gospel always leads to a shallow lifestyle of discipleship. There is, believe it or not, a relationship between the message that you agreed to originally and the lifestyle you live now. So if what you and I agreed to at whatever age was this transactional relationship where I pray a prayer, he forgives my sins. I come to him for eternal insurance, he loves me. I only come back to him when I need something and it's kind of a small corner of my life that I just need to be there in case something horrible happens or I attend church every once in a while. I'm trying to get you to understand a lot of our norms and behaviors that we have a problem with in the American church were and are the result of an oversimplified gospel that has been preached for far too long. When you oversimplify the presentation, the, res the normative response becomes shallow. And what if the picture that was painted from the beginning for the youngest kid in our church to the oldest adult we have calling this church home, what if the picture we had painted was a more complete picture of what it means for Jesus to be the king of Israel and the, the king over all and watch this, the king and ruler and Lord of our own hearts and lives. See, I, I think for the vast majority of us, we don't find out about all those details until later. And that's why radical discipleship doesn't start until later. Because if all it is at the beginning is a moment you had and a decision that you made at an event or in a service or in a time of emotion, don't get me wrong, I love those moments, but we have to confront this reality because the harsh reality, and this is statistics, this is not me wanting to tell you what I'm about to tell you. As I said earlier, please read King Jesus Gospel, it will rock your world. But the thing I love about it is it's not an argument as much as it is a presentation of facts. Did you know Barna, arguably the most credible source for data in the American church. I would say definitely the most credible source. Barna has put out a study, and this is a few years old now, so it's probably even worse than what I'm about to tell you, that has confirmed that in the American church, right now, over 50% of decisions, and when I say decision, I mean two things. Saying yes to Jesus for the first time, as in I raised my hand at the end of the sermon, I prayed the ABC prayer, went to VBS, I, I accepted Jesus at summer camp, I made a decision to follow Jesus. That or baptism. I've, I've chosen to like go public with my faith, get baptized in the church, which is a great decision. Did you know Barna has put out a study that says over 50%, and that number is conservative, it's probably more like 60 or 70 or 75, over 50% of decisions made in the American church do not result in a sustained lifestyle of discipleship. Miles, what does that mean? That means over half of the people saying yes to Jesus in a moment or getting baptized in the American church are walking away from him eventually. That's what it means. And so as a pastor, when I hear that, 
I immediately reach for, okay, is, is there any way we can find out why? Is there any question we're not asking? And I don't think there's a simple answer for a complicated problem, but I do think we have a cultural problem in that an incomplete gospel is producing shallow results. And if people at the beginning are presented with a more complete picture, not just through the one who's articulating it, but through the ones who are living it out and setting a model of what it means to be a radical follower of Jesus, maybe it will become more normative. But that's not going to happen unless you and I confront this convicting reality. And here it is. You can write this down. I, I think I can summarize the problem in this. The problem in our churches, and I think the problem with us related to the gospel is our focus has been been on getting people to make decisions, not on learning how to make disciples. Our focus has been on getting people to make decisions, not on learning how to make disciples. So when the youth group goes away on a trip, what do we normally measure as whether or not that retreat was successful or college or whatever age? We, we measure like three things. How many kids went? I know this because I was a youth pastor. It was always, you, you can prove your worth and value. And how many kids do you have come into your thing? How many got saved? And what we mean by that is how many repeated the prayer in an emotional moment? How many are getting baptized? And when statistical variables are now measuring whether or not a movement is successful, we've now said a decision in a moment is more valuable than something like discipleship, which is harder to measure. Okay, we can always get in front of you and go, man, at ACC, we're, we're seeing God do so much. There's this many thousands of people coming and we had this thing happen and so many people, oh my gosh, it's amazing. Never do I get up here and go, hey guys, you wanna know how great things are going here? There was a dad this week who was about to flip out on his kids, but because he's being discipled, he had a moment where he was able to like rein in his anger by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was, it was miraculous. And, and where he like would have usually lost it he just, in a moment of God's grace, stayed patient and endured faithfully what it means to be a great dad. Isn't that awesome? Like, like we don't ever do that. We don't ever, because we don't have measurable ways of articulating discipleship. Discipleship is messy. Discipleship is slow. It involves formation over time. It involves small victories and steps forward and steps back. And there's no way of putting it up on a screen or on social media and going, this is why it's amazing what God is doing here. And that along with historical patterns have led to where we sit in 2023, where we go, everything is measured by things that actually ultimately aren't going to result in discipleship. Why are we like this? We are like this because you have to know where you sit in church history. And as I said earlier, please read the book. You, you'll get more detail than I'm giving you today. We are like this because we are a product of a movement called revivalism. You, you know, when the Protestant Reformation happened 500 years ago and, and like you, you have all these Protestants who split from the Catholic church and the church goes in two different directions. Now in Protestantism, we have all these different denominations and the Catholic church has gone over here and then there's Eastern Orthodox as well. What that led to was a few hundred years of the primary model of people hearing about Jesus, traveling speakers whose goal was to get people to make a decision at the end of a moment. This happened in the Great Awakening. This happened in the 20th century under people like Billy Graham, which in large part, awesome. Gage talked about this last week. His grandfather and his dad were saved at the same event where Billy Graham preached in Louisiana. So powerful, the story he brought last week. A lot of us have been impacted by those moments. The only issue with that is 
It strips the goal being local church discipleship from being at the center of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So when, when so many of us are tracing back, man, what moment did it finally click for me? And what moment did I make a decision? But so few of us are actually rooted in a local body of believers seeing sustained life change over a lifetime. We miss it. And I, y'all, I already had this sermon planned this week before I got a stomach bug, which was depressing and also lost some weight. Um, but, but I had this sermon totally planned and I got, I got a letter on Friday from someone who, uh, it was an anonymous letter, which as a pastor, you always love that. But it was, it was mostly like so kind and so honoring. It, it was like, so I love your church. My family loves your church. Like th- this church is amazing. But at the end of it, I already had the sermon written. Remember that. It said, I just have one issue that I want to bring to you. And I don't even want to put my name on this letter because I, I, I just have nothing but good things to say about ACC. The person said, why don't you guys do an altar call invitation to accept Christ every week? I feel like there are lost people in your church who are leaving on Sundays who they they just need an on-ramp. They just need a moment to be able to say yes to Jesus. And obviously this person hasn't been here very long because I'm like, okay, we have done altar call moments and we do do real moments where it's like, if you want to say yes to Jesus, say yes right now. We're not against those moments. But on, on the whole, we try not to do that weekly because we want to set forth a culture that's not about a moment that you're banking on, but it's about a lifestyle that you ascribe to. And then at the very end of their letter, they included this detail. They said, maybe I'm wrong. I was saved at a Baptist revival when I was 13 years old. And I just circled that and was like, that's it. It's because the model that we have been given is one where there is one moment that everything hinges on, not a lifetime. And I'm just here to ask today, is there a relationship between that and the fact that the story of Israel and the kingship of Jesus is pretty much stripped from our understanding of who God is? And so I just want to look at what Paul brought, the realities that he brought in Pisidian Antioch and ask us the question, are we a church that has thrown our arms around the King Jesus gospel? Like the King of all creation, the King and promised ruler of Israel. And can we become a church whose heart is really about discipleship becoming the norm? The last thing I want to do with this little window we are given in this time of history in the church is manage the slow decline of the American church in our day. You realize that's what's happening in our country right now. It doesn't feel that way because we're in Auburn and we're a part of this moment. But could it be that we, along with many, many other churches, could be a part of a tide turning and making radical discipleship normal in the church. I believe it starts with reframing your understanding of the gospel from just God loves you, Jesus died, pray a prayer. It's, hold up, let's back up and talk about the king of all creation who created it all in the first place who's a part of a story that you need to know with details that you need. And I know you hear that and you're like, how's that going to make sense to a five-year-old? When the King Jesus gospel starts to infiltrate a culture, it becomes less about what you're saying out loud and more about the lifestyle that you're living. But our lifestyles are not going to be transformed until we have an agreed upon definition of what is the gospel that we're all saying yes to? And does it line up with what King Jesus brought in the first place? Or does it line up with the byproduct of hundreds of years of church history that have us where we are right now? That's the question we're asking today. Everybody okay, by the way? 
Everybody good? Everybody good at all of our other locations? Everybody good in overflow? Okay, I got three points, and then we are going to lift up praise to God. What do I want us to do? I want us to understand what does it mean to embrace the King Jesus gospel. The good news about today is by the end of this sermon, you're going to know whether or not you're a Christian, like for real. You're going to know whether or not you're following Jesus by whether or not you've embraced these three realities. It begins with number one, and I would argue in our day, the most neglected. Jesus is king over Israel. King over Israel. The King Jesus gospel, according to Scott McKnight, who I've been quoting like crazy, is declaring the story of Jesus as the fulfillment of the story of Israel. When Paul summarizes the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, which if you just need like a one chapter summary of the gospel, it's 1 Corinthians 15. It's beautiful. Uh, no, 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 not, not this quote. Yeah, I'll get to that quote in a second. Don't, do not be distracted by the quote behind me. Yeah, stay at this one. Stay at this one. When Paul summarizes the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, here's the gospel. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Christ rose from the dead, according to the scriptures. You read that and you go, oh, Christ died for our sins. Christ rose. But hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't skip the fact that it's embedded in a story according to the scriptures. We have a story that is led up to this moment. And it is a story that the vast majority of us has neglected or we've seen as bonus material. So where I grew up, and I told you Metro Atlanta, Southern Baptist Church until fourth grade, non-denominational church, was given a Bible in first grade as a royal ambassador, which I still know the pledge, by the way, as a royal ambassador. I, me and Gage will do it later. Uh, and uh, and I, I, I grew up believing that the Old Testament was kind of like just a preface just like, oh man, it's kind of weird and God acts strange at times, but don't worry, he figures out all of his stuff by Matthew. Uh, and that's why we tell people when they're new believers here, you might want to start in John, because uh, if you start at the beginning, you might be really confused and they're not necessarily in order and we don't really, just start in John and he'll make everything make sense. And I get that, like the most important part of the story is most definitely the story of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But when you believe that the gospel begins in Matthew, you have an incomplete gospel. The gospel doesn't begin in Matthew. It begins in Genesis. This is one story. And it's the story of a chosen people that God has chosen to send a king. It's the reason why in the Sermon on the Mount that we have up on the wall in the lobby, Jesus doesn't want any confusion. He goes, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Don't think I came to get rid of all this stuff. I came to what? Fulfill them. I'm the fulfillment of the entire story leading up until now. So now I'll read you this Scott Midnight quote, and now you can put it on the screen. It goes like this. He says, this Jesus is Messiah slash King. He is Lord, and he saves as the one who is the perfect image of God, the true and faithful Israelite. In Jesus, God has taken up rule of creation. And those who enter into Jesus' death and resurrection by repentance, faith, and baptism, join him in that rule. This is it, y'all. This is it. The faithful Israelite embedded in the story invites us to share in his rule and reign. What was Jesus' gospel message? I know that's like a controversial question. Did Jesus preach the gospel even though he hadn't died yet? Answer, yes. His gospel was really simple. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. Why did Jesus come with a kingdom? Because this is what God came to establish in the first place. I love that it says through baptism, through faith, through repentance, we now share in his rule and his reign. Why do we need to do that? Because that's the reason why God created us in Genesis. 
Read the creation account. You will never find God going, I created you male and female to follow rules. And then we failed to do that. And now he's got to punish us. Well, he punishes his son instead. So now we can come back to him. Guys, that's not the story. Pay attention to what I'm saying, please. Right now, this could be the most important light bulb that ever goes off in your mind. The story is, I created you in my image to rule and to reign, to have authority over the animals, over the land, like delegated authority. So when we sinned, what did we compromise? We compromised our connection to God that gave us the authority to rule and to reign. And because of our inability, really Israel's inability, to step into that gap, Jesus comes as the faithful Israelite, the son of God, and says, join me in my rule and my reign, and you will see the purpose for which you were created in the first place come alive. Y'all, this is, this is massive that you understand this. Some of y'all think God created you to become a good enough moral person. God created you to be fully human and be fully his. That's Genesis. And Jesus has shown up not to go, I came to help you with this whole disobedience thing. He shows up to go, you are never going to be able to share in my rule and my reign unless someone does something about this. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm bringing a kingdom and your role is repent because it's near. Turn from your sin and trust in me. This is the gospel. I just want to know, guys, where was this? Where was this when the whole presentation was? He died, he rose. Please pray that prayer. Please get baptized so everyone will clap. And please make sure like you, you maybe read your Bible sometimes. Like, no, this is a beautiful story that God has been writing. And embracing the story of scripture goes hand in hand with fully understanding what Jesus has done. This is why we, we, we talk about the Bible all the time, because going deeper in your study of the scriptures, it cannot be something only a chosen few who just want to go deeper in their faith do. This is basic Christianity, because this is what it means to walk deeply with God. We want you to embrace Jesus as king of Israel and know the depths of what that means for your life. Why? You're like, I'm not Jewish. I'm not from Israel. How does that have any meaning toward me? Because Paul says in the New Testament, we are grafted in to the family of God. We are children of Father Abraham. I know you learned that in vacation Bible school growing up. Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had what? That's right. Man, I love y'all. I gotta just say, I would rather be here than anywhere else in the world. Y'all are amazing. That was so great. But so few of us know how to take the story of being God's people and apply it to our lives. I, I, I know, I know Romans and Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians. Like they're all so great and they're all so great, but there's good stuff back here too. Like there's stuff in Genesis. I, I would say the most comforting story for my personal sanctification is about Israel. And I mean the name, because you know Israel, before it was ever the name of a country, it was the name of a man. His name was Jacob. He was the grandson of Abraham, the second born of two twins. His name means deceiver. And after an all-night wrestling match with God, God says, what's your name? Which is interesting because you guys have been fighting all night. You didn't think to introduce yourselves. Like. And he says, I'm Jacob. The last time he was asked this question, he said, I'm Esau. And pretended to be his older brother and deceived his father into getting the birthright. But now he says, I'm Jacob. I'm the deceiver. His name means heel grabber, supplanter. I'm just... The guy who keeps messing up. And God says, I'm going to give you a new name. Your name is now Israel, which means struggles and is triumphant with God.
deceiver to struggles with God and is triumphant. That story of Israel is the story of my life and yours too if you let this story get in deep and go, this is who you are, God? You're the God who chooses the conniving little punk from Genesis to, who's Jacob? Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. I just want to tell you the gospel is more beautiful and wide and deep than you ever thought. Open your mind deeper than praying a prayer at the end of a sermon. Open your heart to the fact that Jesus is the promised son of David and ruler of Israel, and you've been grafted in with a people who many of you know very little about. It's time to get to work and open your Bible and go deeper into who he is. Amen? Jesus, King Jesus gospel, what is it? He's king over Israel. Number two, he's king over everything. King over everything. And, and I know it's like, well, doesn't that include Israel? Yes and no. I mean, number two, I, I'm really talking about your worldview. That you come to understand that Jesus' rule and reign is not a subpoint of the gospel. It is the gospel. That Jesus being glorified and at the center of all things is the reason why God did all things. This is Colossians 1. This is Paul as well. We got a lot of Paul today. He said, for in him, Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy." Paul in Colossians 1 goes, God created everything. Why? For Jesus. In Jesus and for Jesus. So he's the one who did it, and he's the one who it's for. Why does creation exist? Why do oceans exist? Why do animals exist? Why do I exist? To give Jesus supremacy over all things. See, the problem with the oversimplified gospel is you don't discover until after the fact that Jesus is at the center and on the throne of everything. And if you don't accept that, you will end up with a spirituality that's more about you than about him. Think, think Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, another Old Testament passage that you need to know really well. Isaiah's in the throne room of God. Holy, holy, holy song we were singing earlier. He's so mighty. He's so amazing. Oh, my goodness. And Isaiah's like, whoa, I shouldn't be here because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips. And then a seraphim flies over and, like, presses tongs from a sacrifice on the altar and says, your guilt has been paid for. Your sin is atoned for. It's an amazing small picture of the gospel. But when you read Isaiah 6 and you ask the question, who is Isaiah 6 about? The answer is not Isaiah being forgiven for his sins. The answer is Isaiah 6 is about the one on the throne being glorified. And Isaiah wasn't going to get to participate because of his sin. And now he's invited because God has provided a sacrifice. That's you and that's me. Do not hear me say today that your forgiveness and your justification before God is not important. No, it's very important because without that, you don't get invited into the story. But once you know that you are justified before God and you are invited into the family, you do need to know that is not about you. It includes you, but it is so that you can participate in a global story that is about one name. Why do I have breath in my lungs? To make Jesus look awesome. Why have I been given another day on planet Earth? To make the name of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus spread. 
That's our purpose. But watch this. This is, like, this is like me discovering after the fact, oh, wow, the Old Testament is actually a part of the gospel. Most of us discover after the fact, oh, wow, my life's not about me. And we're not, we're not telling people this at the beginning and going, yeah, like, he's ruler and reigning over everything with or without you, but he's invited you into his story. See, it, it makes us smaller, but it makes the story that much more glorious and humbling to be a part of. What is the King Jesus gospel? It's, I embrace Jesus as king over Israel, king over everything. Y'all still with me? Because I got number three, and then we're gonna sing. Number three, king over my life. King over my life. Oh man, if, if any one of these is seen as bonus material, this one. I, I, I do not want people to continue to come to Jesus for forgiveness and discover later that forgiveness involves personal surrender. Jesus is not just this overarching king of everything and of Israel. When he invites you personally into the story, his invitation is this. You were created to worship and give affection somewhere. Put me on the throne of your life. Give me authority to make the calls over what you do over how you act, over how you do everything you do in this body. Make me Lord over all. And you might hear that and go, wow, he just, he just wants all the control. He just wants all that. You need to understand, when you discover that what Jesus is trying to give you by being your king is not just getting you to heaven one day. It's about getting you to him today. Like what Jesus desires is communion with you. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you are living in the strength of your own flesh, good news from the King Jesus gospel, God already told you ahead of time how much that was never going to work. And he's inviting you into the most freeing reality of all. Give me the space that you're so often giving to yourself and experience the freedom of self-forgetfulness where you no longer have to live for their approval or for mine because you already have it. See, this isn't because God is on a glory quest trying to take attention from everyone and everything else. This is happening because our God is slow to anger and abounding in love and kindness, extending forgiveness to a thousand generations for those who would believe Y'all, the good news of the King Jesus gospel is Jesus takes the throne of your heart so that you can draw near to the lover of your soul. I don't want you walking away from this today going, okay, I gotta be more radical and I gotta read more and I gotta understand more and I gotta be good enough to be in the family of God. No, 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 exact opposite. This story is so beautiful because it doesn't hinge on you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Make Jesus the king of your heart and life today because if you don't, it's gonna be you. You don't want that pressure. You don't want that depression. You don't want that loneliness. You don't want that exhaustion. You do not want to be king or queen of your story. And the freedom that could happen today as we put Jesus on his rightful place is, oh my goodness, This is exactly what I was created for. He's king over Israel. He's king over everything. But he can have my heart and he can have my life because why? He's better. I promise I'm almost done. I know I went long today. Y'all stay with me. Stay with me. Look up here. What's the gospel message? 
that we're always trying to give people. We're always trying to tell people, when you discover that Jesus is better and better by far, when you discover that he's better than any other option, that's the light bulb that clicks for people when they're like, it's not just when you believe the stuff, it's when you go, I've tasted and I've seen, you're better. So I was finishing reading King Jesus' gospel and the writer, and I I might want to contact him personally, he gets to a frustrating place where he's like, I want to summarize the King Jesus gospel in a few words, but I can't find the right words. Like, I know how to write it into paragraphs, but he's like, I, we, you could say Jesus is king, but that doesn't, that doesn't really communicate the personal nature of what Jesus has done. And you could say Jesus is Lord, but that doesn't really communicate the savior part of it and the fact that sins are forgiven. He's like, I'm just, I'm looking for a way to say with a few words, everything that the King Jesus gospel articulates. And I just remember dropping the book and going, we've already got it, man. We've already got it. You wanna know how to summarize the King Jesus gospel? You wanna know how to summarize Genesis to Revelation? You only need two words, Jesus wins. Jesus wins, y'all. That's it. The whole story is you win, You win over creation, you win over Israel, you win my heart, you win over hell, you win over Satan, you win over demons, you win over cancer, you win over everything that could hold us back today. Like it's your glory, it's your victory. And and guess what, unity with Christ means if he wins, so do I, because I'm in him. I've given him the throne. So I know we normally take communion at the end of our sermons. We're not gonna do that today because honestly, what else can we do to finish this sermon but sing all hail King Jesus? Like, I know, I know we sing it a lot, and you might be like, oh, typical. Yes, typical, because there's no better song for us to sing. Let's stand up at all of our locations. Choir, come out here. I'm gonna pray, and then we're just gonna go for it. Don't waste one moment giving God the glory. If you wanna decide to follow Jesus for the first time today, we've pretty much articulated what that means. Let's bow our heads together as much as you can. Stay in this space as people are encountering God, because there are a lot of people in the lobby watching. Stay in this space. Heavenly Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus that you've given us this moment to sing this song. I just pray that the weight and the reality of what we have heard at church today would reverberate through every note and that God, we would become a people who radically decide that your kingship and your lordship is no longer optional in the local church. You are everything, God. You're everything we need. You're everything we want. Would you move now? Would you speak to your people now? We sing to you. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.